The reading today comes from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord uh, uh, appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for this place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. Thanks, Trey. Morning, Redemption. Happy long weekend to all of you. Good to see you this morning. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Frank, and I'm the lead pastor at Redemption Church Arcadia, and uh, glad to be back with you. I want to thank Sean and uh, Josh for coming and leading us last week. Wasn't it good to see uh, Sean again, those of you who know Sean? Yes? It's okay to clap for Sean. I won't tell him. Um, And then many of you, that was the first time you'd ever been led in worship by Josh Miles, who's a tremendously uh, gifted uh, guy for being able to do that, and we're glad to have him uh, with us as well. You can open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to be in 3 and 4 this morning, but before we get there, I want to highlight a couple of um, uh, other events that are coming up. Uh, I wanted to talk about these rather than um, having Trey do it. First of all, uh, there he is, right, sitting right in front of me. This Thursday night is our next Backstories, and it's going to be with Chuck Coughlin. Um, he's in the fourth row in a white polo shirt, in case you're wondering who he is. <laughs> and uh, Chuck is, uh, he would never say this, but Chuck is an amazing guy with a really interesting job. I guess the best way you would describe it, and don't pigeonhole him because of this, but he's a political consultant, but um, the the biggest challenge in his life has been uh, what being a political consultant did to his life and how God, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, led him into a deeper relationship with Christ as a result of that. And now he has to negotiate this world of politics that we live in today as a believer, um, and getting paid in his business to be able to give counsel in the midst of that. I mean, think about the tension and the lines that you have to walk there. And so he's going to be interviewed as our next backstory, and it's going to be really interesting, I think. Um, Chuck and I have gotten to know each other quite well over the last couple of years. We we, We share a love for the history of Phoenix and Maricopa County, and so uh, I, would, I would just encourage you to be here at the next Backstories. And then the following Wednesday night on September 11th, uh, we have invited a guy named Robbie Lashua to come in, and he's uh, what you might call uh, somebody who's been called into the ministry of understanding how the Christian church can do a better job of loving the LBGTQ plus community. And he's going to come in and talk about that for a couple of hours. Uh, There's going to be some time for some exchange. He's also going to present some material. And we're also going to be serving dinner uh, for that event as well. That's Wednesday, September 11th. And it starts at 6. That's when the dinner starts. 
And we need you to RSVP for this event, whether you're bringing kids for childcare or not, because we need to know how much food to order, okay? So uh, please let us know uh, if you're going to be coming to that. But again, uh, it'll be a, a very interesting um, and I think challenging but also helpful evening for us uh, to do that. So um, again, thanks to Sean. We've been in Exodus for... For the last, this is our third week. We're going to be here for 12 more weeks after this. It's really just a flyover, so we've got to cover a lot of material every single uh, Sunday. But one thing for sure I want you to remember every single week is that the main theme of Exodus is that God is making himself known, and not just to his people, but to everybody. And that doesn't necessarily mean that people are going to believe in God, but they're going to know who God is, and they're going to know uh, what he's capable of. So he's making himself known to his people, the Israelites, as well as the Egyptians, but that's going to look a little bit different for um, each of them. So as we get into chapters uh, 3 and 4 today, let me pray and then we'll talk about it. Lord God, we, we are grateful for who you are. We're thankful. Uh, and God, I just pray that we would find our identity in who you are through your son Jesus Christ and the filling of your Holy Spirit and then even pressing further into understanding who you are through your word. You tell us these stories through your word so that we might know, you who, know who you are in a deeper and more comprehensive and a more loving way. And so help us to be able to do that. Um, there are many ways that we can learn and understand. And, and frankly, it's probably better in, in most respects that we get to learn from the hardship of others, who you really are, rather than going through some of those hardships ourselves. So help us to understand that and help us to learn from what others have gone through in their story with you. We ask that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of who Jesus is and the good news that he is, that we are sinners and that there's nothing we can do to save ourselves because of that. Our, our relationships are broken with you, with others, with ourselves, with creation. But through your son, Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection, we can be reconciled to you, restored to you, and redeemed by you. God, thank you for that. Remind us of that as we go through this, uh, these two chapters today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week, Sean came in and gave us chapter 2. Moses was born. He was preserved against all odds. And then we're told a story about how he acts against an injustice. He sees an injustice and he acts against this injustice. Seems like a righteous thing to do. But immediately after he acts against this injustice, he's actually sent into exile for 40 years. In a sense, he's disciplined or even, some would say, punished. And, and we ask the question, well, wait a minute, wasn't his behavior righteous? That's not fair. His behavior was righteous, right? Well, maybe and maybe not. But in fact, I would argue that's the wrong question to ask of the text in that case. Was his behavior righteous? Because the true issue, the real challenge in that text is not what he did, but why he did it and how he did it. He did it out of pride. He did it out of arrogance. And he did it out of his own power. Notice there was no consultation whatsoever with God. There was no calling by God. He just, he just raised up in his own personal righteous anger to do it. And so it was about him and it was not about 
God. And that was the problem with what he did. At Redemption Church, we have seven values. Here are two of them. We do God's work God's way. And we take God seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. Moses violated both of those values. I'm not saying he's a member of Redemption Church, but he is certainly part of our history, if you want to look at it that way. But he violated both of those values. Yet God, yet God was working in Moses' life, even during that time. Even when Moses was acting out of his own pride and arrogance, God was there working. Before, God, before Moses even acknowledged it or realized it, God was there working. Remember, Sean talked a ton last week about how you see God working in the background of everything that was happening. God, was, God is sovereign and he was arranging and he was calling and he was filling. And guess what? God is also already and always working in our lives when we don't even realize it, when we don't even understand it. I didn't come to Christ until I was 27 years old, but once I came to Christ and I began to reflect on my life before Christ, I saw how God had provided for me and protected me mostly from myself during those first 27 years, that he was already working in my life before, before the Holy Spirit got a hold of my heart and transformed me. So even when we think God isn't working in our lives, he's there working. Moses' arrogance, his failure, and his humbling were all used by God to prepare him for this very moment that we're going to look at in Exodus 3 and 4. And 80 years have now passed since Moses was born. We have to understand that. It, Moses is 80 years old at this time, and 40 of those years he has, been, he has spent essentially in exile just as a shepherd, which is one of the lowest jobs you can have in their context and in their culture. He has truly been humbled uh, by God. And at the end of chapter 2, we're actually set up for what comes next. I know Sean covered this last week, but I think it helps lead us uh, into uh, this story in 3 and 4. Look at 23 through 30, 25 in chapter 2. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. This would be the one that uh, wanted Moses executed for his act of righteousness. Uh, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Uh, that language in verse 24, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you're going to see that over and over and over, and you need to understand that that is language of covenant, the covenant that God has made with his people, regardless of what his people decide to do, which is a good thing because we can screw that up any, any old which way. He makes this covenant with starting with Abraham, and so that's covenantal language. We need to understand that, and it reminds us that God is always going to fulfill his promise to his people. It just might take a little longer than you and I would hope for or expect. We have to understand that. And of course, it says there that God knew. He knew their suffering. In other words, it's time. The deliverance is finally coming. Sean did a wonderful job last week of talking about how God saw, he heard, he felt, and he knew, and he understood. Well, he's about to move. But there is an objection that we often hear at this point. And rather than just glossing over it and hoping that nobody thinks about it or asks this question, I want to deal with it here. It's the fact that it seems like God took a long time to hear and respond to his people, right? 
How long had they been groaning, actually? How long had they been oppressed? How long had they been in slavery? Well, I would argue that it wasn't necessarily the entire 350 years. But even if it was, uh, even if it was 80 years or 40 years or 100 years, that's a long time, isn't it? Isn't it? You would still ask, why? How long, O oh Lord, before you do something? We often think about this in the context of how long it seems to take for God to work in our lives to right some wrong, to, to attack some injustice, and to, be, and, to, and to be fair to me. How long, oh Lord, how long? Now this isn't necessarily the only illustration, but I think it's a pertinent illustration because again, it's about, it's about slavery. I want you to think about this. Have you, have you ever stopped to consider how long African Americans had to wait on the slavery issue? in our country. Have you ever really stopped to think about that? Just get past your biases right now and really start to think about that as a people group, how long it took. According to what the histories I've read, it started, it, by the way, slavery is true all over the world. It's still going on today. I'm talking about here on this continent. It started for us sometime around 1620. The Emancipation Proclamation was signed in 1863. Already you got 243 years there. And then from 1863 to 1964, you had these things called Jim Crow laws. So think about 1620 to, 18, to, to 1964. Just think about that. That's almost 350 years. How long? How long? How fair was that? I, I say that because I'm not a good waiter. And I get impatient. And I ask how long all the time. I ask how long at traffic lights, y'all. I ask how, come on, how long do I have to sit here? I'm busy. God is calling me to something. I need to put my waiting in perspective, and so do you. And here's something else. Let me just dig a little bit deeper. Understand when we're in a tough situation, it's not always our fault. It's not always because of our own volition. Because we live in a fallen world, things happen. We didn't ask for it. Children get sick. Issues come up at work that are completely out of your control. I, I get that. But also think about this. How much of our, if you want to use this term, slavery, how much of our slavery is self-induced? We decided. By our own volition, volition, we decided to become a slave to drugs, or to sex, or to status, or our pride, or any other false god that you and I might have. How often are we actually enslaved by our own volition? Most slaves are never put in that position by their own volition, and neither were the African Americans. Just some thought for that. Well, now here we go. We look now at what was read, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3. Verse 1 talks about Horeb, the mountain of God. Why is it called the mountain of God? Well, it's because so much is going to happen there throughout the rest of the book of Exodus once we, once we get there, I including God giving the Ten Commandments to Moses there. It's Sinai, and it's the region where the Israelites spend much of their 40 um, years. And then this whole idea of the bush that is burning but not consumed, the best thing I can come up with that, and it's a horrible analogy because it really doesn't even truly show it, but those gas fireplaces that kind of looks like the, the log is burning, that's not even close, but that's the best I got. I don't know. There's a flame in a bush and the bush remains intact. 
The point is, it had to be out of the ordinary in order to get Moses' attention and for Moses to understand that this is God. He couldn't explain it scientifically. He couldn't explain it naturally. And then verse 5, God says, the first thing God says to Moses is, do not come near, this is holy ground. It's not that this particular plot of land was holy, but God's presence is what made it holy. And the picture of verses 5 and 6 is very simple. God is holy and righteous, and you and I are corrupt with sin. And so to draw near to God, absent the saving grace of Jesus, we're going to get there eventually. To draw near to God, absent Jesus, could destroy us. And yet, God calls Moses into his ministry. That's what God does to us, too. He calls us. When we become Christians, we are actually called into ministry. We may not realize that, and it may not consume our entire lives, but we're called into our ministry. Wherever we are, whatever we're doing, whatever our histories, God can use that and does use that. Now, most of us, I imagine, are not going to lead a people out of oppression, but that does not mean that we aren't supposed to be or do what we're called to do. So... Be a loving, nurturing, providing husband and father. Be a loving, respectful, encouraging wife and mother. Be a friend who actually takes the initiative rather than sitting around waiting for others to make the first move and then complaining that they don't. Be an employee who whines just a little bit less and instead goes the extra mile to serve others and maybe even your boss well. Pick an area of the church that might stretch your little comfort bubble and serve there. Volunteer for children's ministry, especially if your children are grown. Serve the young parents that way. Take a refugee to the grocery store. Mentor a prison, prisoner through alongside ministries. Pray for our city. And then right at the end of what Trey read, you heard that covenant language again. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob just continuously repeated. So now, 7 through 12, I'm going to read a lot of scripture today. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that, he may bring my, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God said, But I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain, Horeb, the mountain of God. So it's time. God will now deliver his people, and Moses is going to be the one he uses to do it. God sees, hears, feels, and knows. And understand, God is working through Moses. God says, I have come down. Kind of sounds like Jesus. Little foreshadowing of Jesus. And his chosen people, God's chosen people, the Israelites, will be delivered to the land flowing with milk and honey. Have you ever stopped to consider what that description, a land flowing with milk and honey, really means? Well, milk, the word milk is actually shorthand for 
animals and their byproducts. So a land flowing with meat, eggs, butter, hides, oils, and milk. And, and then honey is shorthand for horticulture and its products. So it's a land flowing with fruits, roots, vegetables, grains, wine, fig newtons, if you're so inclined. So a land flowing with cows and avocados, a land flowing with cheeseburgers and french fries. I'm sorry, this is Arcadia. A land flowing with grilled salmon, a kale-based salad, <laughs> and a craft Belgian white. <laughs> but the most significant thing in these verses, Moses says, who am I to go? Forty years earlier, he was saying, why wouldn't God pick me? I'm not even going to talk to God about it. Now he's saying, who am I to go? And God says, you know what? It's really not important who you are. What's important is that I'm going to be with you. That's the basis of the gospel. Have you ever thought about it that way? That's the basis of the gospel. Who am I that I should receive grace and mercy, but God bestows grace and mercy on us? It's also the basis of our ministry and work. Who am I that I should bless others and add value and serve, but God equips and empowers us? It's even the basis of our existence. Who am I, God, that you would even notice me, but God created us and he loves us? But now the Moses objections begin. Look at verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And God said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is the first of Moses' objections. It's, it's subtle, but it's an objection. He's saying, okay, it's not good enough that you're the God of our fathers. I need a name, and that name better mean something. And we should cut Moses a little bit of slack here, uh, because in their context, for a Hebrew, this question is legitimate because the name means a lot. It means a lot more to them than it does to us today. For ancient Hebrews, your, your name reflects the very essence of, of who you are. If you've ever read the Old Testament a lot, you begin to see the importance that the Old Testament places on names, and this is why. And God's name, I am who I am, clearly states this. And get this. He's saying, I am self-existence. And therefore, I'm not dependent on anything or anyone else for my existence. That's what he's saying when he says, I am who I am. Anybody here say that? Able to say that? No, because we're not God. It's just we have to be reminded of that occasionally. At any rate, this becomes the first in a litany of ways that Moses objects to this assignment from God. You and me, how good are you, are you and I at ducking God's call in our life? Look at Moses, the excuses he throws out. How many times have we used those same excuses? Like Moses, you and I are always ready to negotiate with God and question the way he decides to do things. Have you ever noticed that? We like to negotiate with God and question the way he wants to do things. Look at verses 18 through 20. God says, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please, let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. 
After that, he will let you go. So verse 18 does turn out to be true. In spite of Moses' concerns about the Israelites not listening to him, they do listen to him. Here you go. At first, they don't always listen to him, but they do when he first comes. But then, of course, starts 40 years of misery for Moses as they constantly grumble and complain against him. But also, think about this. Isn't it interesting that God chooses to not identify with the strong and powerful nation, but he chooses instead to identify with the weak, oppressed, and enslaved nation? Shouldn't we consider that also? Also in the New Testament, Jesus never identifies with those who have the worldly power, but rather he identifies with the marginalized and the disregarded and the under-resourced and the weak. People often say, your Christian faith is a crutch. Fine, it is. I need Jesus. You want to call him a crutch? Fine, you need that crutch too. We all do. But then verses 18, uh, 19 and 20 are also true, but they're also sobering. This is the beginning of a truly understanding what God is going to do to Israel in this process. I'm sorry, to Egypt in this process. And essentially, God is preparing us to understand that those who don't listen to God, you're playing with fire. Either the natural consequences of God's created order, which has been disordered by sin, will kick in, or in fact, God will discipline, rebuke, correct, or even compel us. The king of Egypt and his people are going to find out the hard way who God is unfortunately. Let's you and I not find out the hard way who God is. And then verses 21 and 22, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, the Israelites. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for, uh, for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and you shall plunder the Egyptians. Well, this is weird, isn't it? The plundering? There's not going to be a war necessarily, but apparently the Israelites are going to have some plundering. What is that about? Well, there are two possibilities. Number one, by the time God is through, quote, compelling or disciplining or exhibiting his retributive justice on Pharaoh and his people as they experience God the hard way through the plagues, it's been so unpleasant for the Egyptians that they're willing to give the Israelites anything to just get them out of their nation. Please, go, get out of here. We'll give you all of our stuff. Or, second possible explanation is God compels the Egyptians to also give plunder to the Israelites as a sort of repayment for all of this oppression and slavery that they've suffered over the years. Either way, they get to take stuff with them out of Egypt. And now, chapter 4. Verses 1 through 9, so I know there's a long passage, but it all hangs together. So, then Moses answered God, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, what is, what is it that in your hand? And he said, a staff. And God said, well, throw it on the ground. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. That reminds me of what I'm doing when I'm walking or jogging in the Phoenix Mountain Preserves and I see a rattlesnake. I do not engage. I run from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand, uh, put out your hand and catch it by, by the tail. So Moses put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord 
the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, covenant language, has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said, uh, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And Moses put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside the cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they do not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you take shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So now we have more Moses objections. He says, yeah, but they're not going to believe me. And so God gives him these three signs or miracles. The snake, the hand, and the water from the Nile becoming blood. Two of these signs are shown to Moses. One, he has to take on faith that the water will turn into blood. Two of them are shown to help get Moses off the dime. And the other one is reserved as the last resort in case the people don't listen uh, to Moses, even though they are. And then verses 10 through 17. But Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, now, now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But Moses said, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with, you, with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand this staff with which you shall, do, you shall do the signs. So this is the last of Moses' objections, and there are uh, two of them. And God has finally had enough of this. <laughs> He's had enough of the objections. This is also common with you and I when God calls us. It's what I call the yeah, but factor. You know the yeah, but factor? Okay. Yeah, but God, I'm busy. Yeah, but God, I'm not that talented. Yeah, but God, there must be somebody else who can do this. Yeah, but God, I'll get serious about my faith and serving later. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. It's funny, and it's funny how God goes all Job on Moses in verse 12, right? He starts to ask him these questions that he can't answer. So what if you can't speak? I'm sovereign. I'm the one who's done all of this. I am going to be with you. So remember two things. God does not call us without equipping and resourcing us. He just doesn't. Why would he? We may not, we may not see the way he's resourcing us. We may not even like the way he equips us. But he will nevertheless. And second of all, we need to remember that God is God. So when God calls, trust that God will be God. That is the source of God's frustration to what Moses says here. He says, why would I call you to this task if I don't have this figured out? I'm the creator God of this entire universe, for crying out loud. You don't think I can help you? It's essentially what he's saying. 
And now, honestly, some of these remaining verses in chapter 4 are just kind of weird and unexpected, but we need to tackle them. Look at verses 18 through 20. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So he's not going to have to worry about Pharaoh executing him. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. So all the obstacles are now cleared away. His father-in-law is on board. The people of Egypt who would like to indict and execute Moses for his crime 40 years earlier, they're all gone, so no threat or problem there. And now he's got transportation as well. Notice it's a donkey, maybe some little Palm Sunday reference. And he's got the staff that God told him to take with him. Nothing could possibly go wrong now, right? Not so fast. Verses 21 through 23. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that, you do, uh, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will then harden Pharaoh's heart so that he will not let, his people, uh, let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Wow. So obstacle number one, Pharaoh is going to get in the way and God is actually going to play a heart in Pharaoh's obstinance. A lot of people get riled about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And I get that. But you need to understand it once again in context. First of all, it's not like Pharaoh's a good guy. It's not like he had this wonderfully soft and compassionate heart to start with. He had a hardened heart to begin with. Pharaoh was evil. And also, when we get there, when we get to the plagues, we're going to find out that Pharaoh hardened his own heart for the first five plagues, and it wasn't until the second five plagues that God then introduced himself into the hardening of the heart and merely gave what Pharaoh wanted in the first place. He gave to Pharaoh what Pharaoh wanted in the first place. You and I have got to quit blaming God for the poor decisions and rebellion of people. Isn't that just like us, though? Somebody, us included, we make a a foolish decision, and the first thing we do is we blame God. We need to take responsibility and accountability for our own stuff. Furthermore, let me give you this as well. There are actually three words throughout Exodus that are used to translate this word hardened when it's talked about in relationship to hardening uh, the heart. Three different ancient Hebrew words, and they're used almost interchangeably, but it should open our eyes to some meaning. The first word means to harden your grip around something or to grasp more tightly. Pharaoh has hardened his grip on his own heart, and God is also going to harden his grip on Pharaoh for chasing down his people. The second word means to make heavy. Pharaoh made the work heavy for God's people. We're going to see even more of that later. Well, God is now going to be the heavy on Pharaoh. Retributive justice. And then third, it means to harden as in labor pains. God uses the exodus to rebirth his nation, but it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. 
A lot of bad stuff is going to happen. But this text goes even further. God says to Egypt, you're sticking it to my firstborn. Again, there's covenant language, my firstborn. You're sticking it to my firstborn, and in fact, you aborted many of my firstborn. You had your chance. In fact, I'm going to give you ten chances now. That's what the plagues are, ten chances. But your firstborns will suffer the consequences of your wickedness. And I know this is tough stuff. But again, we cannot escape the reality that the consequences of someone else's sin will visit others. The consequences of somebody else's sin eventually will visit others. We do not sin in a vacuum. It's inescapable. Paul teaches the same thing in Romans chapter 9. And that firstborn thing, I'm telling you, there's a lot of conviction here for me anyway. I think about our culture of abortion in the United States. What is God going to do when he decides to bring about justice and judgment for that? What's going to happen there? I don't say that to lay any guilt on anybody, but there's a reality there that we have to deal with. What about the way we in America have decided to treat others? And I'm not even talking right now necessarily about ethnic or racial others. We treat people who think differently than us as others and we treat them badly. That's not the call of the Christian life. That's not the call of the Christian ethic. That's not who Christ is. That's not who the Holy Spirit is in us in any context, anywhere. But then that's not even the biggest and weirdest potential obstacle that we come up with. Watch this. Look at verses 24 through 26. This is absolutely amazing. At a lodging place along the way, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. What? Then Zipporah, Moses' wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. How many of you did something like that this morning at your house? Okay, yeah. So God let him alone. It was then that Zipporah said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. God decides to kill Moses. Okay, here you go. After the burning bush, after God's call on Moses, after God deals with all of Moses' objections, after the snake, the leprous hand, the Nile blood and water thing, after the father-in-law's permission, after the donkey, after all of that, God is going to execute Moses. I think it's fair to ask, what's going on? Well, Moses wasn't obedient in circumcising his kid. Really? That's it? Yeah. Circumcision was established and commanded by God way back in Genesis, and Moses refused to abide. It was the first of the covenants, circumcision. God needs Moses to see that he's got to do what he's called by God to do. But God also cares not just what Moses is called to do, but who he is. Is he really on board with God? And thankfully, Zipporah was spiritually discerned, as Paul would say in 1 Corinthians. She was spiritually discerned, she gets it, and she fixes it. And that language of the bridegroom of blood uh, lets us, the readers, know that the act of circumcising their child when Moses did not serve the purpose of atoning for Moses' sin of disobedience to the covenant. And so now they're on their way, verses 27 through 31. The Lord said to Aaron, 
go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. It's a common ancient greeting. And Moses told Aaron all of the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke of all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that, the Lord, when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. So we're all set now. The people rejoice in worship, and Moses and Aaron, they're going to do this thing by God's power and guidance. I want to end today just with three quick points of application. These will go fast, but I think they're important. Number one, the gospel is all over this passage, and it's all over the book of Exodus. This is like hitting a big beach ball when you got to connect it to the gospel out of the book of Exodus. Not so easy in some of the old, other Old Testament books, but in Exodus, it's so easy. And specifically, the fact that we can now draw near because of who Christ is. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I just want to remind you uh, once again of how beautiful and important this is. Hebrews chapter 10, verses uh, 10 through 11 And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Remember I talked about this? A priest was required to stand every time they made a sacrifice for sin. Jesus now sits down. He's made the last, the it is finished sacrifice for sin. And then 19 through 22, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from, the evil, from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Moses was told not to draw near. In Christ now, we get to draw near. We're called to draw near. We get to come with, with boldness and confidence and with our heads held high because of the love and grace and mercy of Christ. That's the gospel right there. That's a beautiful thing. Here's the second thing I want to mention us. God calls us and he equips us and God is also with us, but that doesn't mean it isn't going to be hard. The number of people who believe that because God has called them into a ministry, God is now obligated to make that ministry easy and trouble-free, it's amazing to me. Read your Bibles. That's not what happens. You're in for a tussle. In this world, you're going to have trouble, Jesus says, but take heart. I've overcome this world. People are going to object. They're going to become obstacles to you. And, and I'm not even talking about people outside of our faith. I'm talking about people who believe the same things as you. They're going to object and they're going to become obstacles to you. But that's why God both calls us and equips us, and then he goes with us as well. And then number three, I mentioned at the beginning that Moses was 80 when God called him, and that should perhaps help instill some patience in some of us. Some of us, I found, hit like 55 or 60 and figure, eh, I've done enough for God. He might be just getting started with you at this point. I got 20 years before he calls me to do anything. 
You see that? But that's not the whole story. You've got to get this too. Not only was Moses 80 years old, but he was a fugitive. He was a felon. And he was also, as we saw in the passages today, inarticulate. He was also this uneducated guy working as a shepherd. In other words, he was perfect for the job because his ministry depended on one thing, God. That's what makes us perfect for the job, God. The excuses you and I come up with to avoid doing ministry and to avoid God's call on our life and our resources, man. And yet the gospel of Jesus is so powerful that he chooses us, he calls us, and remember, he comes down for us. This is what Paul writes, again, in Philippians. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of of a servant, and being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus also came down for us. And in that we can celebrate. Let's pray together. Lord God, what a magnificent story you teach us through Moses. And as we read and study and watch and listen and feel and know, I pray that your grace would be with us and that your discerning would be unveiled to us so that we might see the truth of all of this in our lives as well. God, I pray that you would make us aware of the grace, the love, the joy, and the hope that we have in you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.